You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. So we are continuing on our series through 1 Peter, and we maybe get to one of the linchpins uh, passages of the entire letter. And I just want to remind you of something. As we read the scriptures, as you listen to the scriptures, it is easy to read everything through the lens of personal application. Um, What do I need to do to better myself? And there is nothing inherently wrong with that necessarily, but it is inherently incomplete, and it's not how it was meant to be read. In In the New Testament, if you think about all the various letters that are written, Timothy and Titus, are addressed as personal letters. The rest are corporate. And we read each letter like it was individually written to me, for me, and with me in mind. That is not so. Uh, It is meant to be heard as an individual listening in the midst of a group of people that sees him or herself in light of the family of God. That is what we are after So as we jump in today, just bear that in mind. This letter was not written to you, and it was not written to any individual. It was written to a group of people like us. So I would like to take this section in three parts. And that is tasting, receiving, and building. So if we start off, we see, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And if you are familiar with the New Testament, you hear this analogy of newborn infants and you might immediately jumped to what Paul said about how he gave the church at Corinth milk because they were not ready for real food. But that is actually not the context here. Peter is not referring to the infancy of followers of Jesus, but to the maturity of followers of Jesus. So just like infants, when they are born into the world, they all have a need. They all want something. Primarily, they want milk from their mother. So, too, the churches scattered around the Roman Empire are longing and desiring and wanting the Lord because they have tasted that he is worth every ounce of devotion. And it is because of this undivided devotion they put away slander and envy and malice. So let me give you an analogy. I am a big sweets guy, all right? But I was not always this way. And as a kid, actually, I was a pretty picky eater. And I only liked predictable things, especially when it came to desserts. We did not have choices in our home growing up. We had Neapolitan ice cream. And that is what I ate because that is what was given to me. And that is the only dessert I ever had till I was about 18 years old. And my senior year in high school, a riveting conversation over terrible cafeteria food struck up. Do cherries taste good? Now, when you're a high school boy and your only form of communication is through sarcasm over things that literally don't matter in the world, this is the stuff you live for. (laughs) So, of course, I have never tasted a cherry in my life. And I argue out of wayward ignorance how cherries should not even be considered in the dessert category. 
Why would anyone eat cherries at the apex of your meal? It is insanity. But in college, I'm living with roommates, and we are binge-watching The Office, as one does in college. And we decided one Friday night that we were going to build a new tradition. We're going to call it Pie Day Friday. And each Friday, we would sit down, we would watch The Office, and we would go out and buy pies. Each of us would eat a pie as we watched five to ten episodes of The Office every Friday night. Now, having foolishly not wanted anything except Neapolitan ice cream for 18 years of my life, I am at a significant crossroads. I don't eat pie, but peer pressure might be stronger than my apparent disdain for certain desserts I have never tried. So I guess I'll give this pie thing a go. So I make my way to Kroger, and I recall the conversation years prior. Do cherries taste good? What the heck? Let's give it a go. So I got myself a Sarah Lee cherry pie. Changed my ever-loving life. I was once lost. But then I was found. I saw the light. The cherry light. It was so good. Now, here's the thing. I'm a pie enthusiast now. I love a good pie. Uh, there is not a pie I won't eat or will not advertise for. Um, it's a ridiculously silly analogy. But the point stands. I had never tasted it before. I am making a judgment on a food that has never been tried. And part of me thinks our struggle in American evangelicalism is that we have yet to really encounter the presence of the living God and thus our senses have become dull to where He is moving around us and within us. We know the makeup of God. We have some theological ideas about Him, but we are not hungry or thirsty for righteousness as Jesus describes in the Sermon on the Mount. We have not actually experienced Psalm 34, 8, which is, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. The reason, the reason we strip ourselves and rid ourselves of idols, attachments, and habits is because we have tasted that the Lord is good. We don't rid ourselves of water cooler gossip and daydreaming about our neighbor's car or slandering people's reputation because we think that's just a good idea. We don't do those things because we have tasted something far better than the bittersweet pill of feeding the rumor mill or envying a better life. Would you define your pursuit of God as hunger or thirst? Or does it feel more like an occasional snack that aids your day as you go along? The epitome of Lent is the deprivation of one thing for the filling of another. It's the hunger for something that ends up feeding your hunger for God. To taste the goodness of Jesus is to feed your hunger for more of Jesus. In our world, we have what is called an attention problem. The number one fight over you right now in your everyday 24-hour-a-day life is a fight for your attention. 
Everyone wants it. It is maybe one of our greatest currencies we have to diagnose what we love, what we give our attention to. And when your attention is dulled by so many other things at the table, you don't actually feed on what nourishes you. You have to regain a sense of taste, of desire, of wanting what is of God and what is just calorie-filled snacks. And then he says receiving. And he gives this great exhortation that we probably could do a whole sermon series on. I'm just going to focus on the last phrase. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So what are we doing? We are receiving. What are we receiving? Mercy. Mercy is a common term in Christian circles because it is a common term in the scriptures. But when we think of the traditional definition of mercy, we think of God withholding punishment from us only. And there is truth to that. The cross is mercy personified. It's the taking on of judgment so that others might go free. But throughout the scriptures, mercy describes protection as much as it does withholding judgment. The best example we see of mercy being about the protection is Moses' relationship with God. You would think that after the burning bush episode... That would have been enough for Moses. A bush burns without it being consumed. God calls out Moses from the bush to go free the people of Israel. That story will play at parties for years. But Moses had heard the call of God. He had experienced the miracles of God through the ten plagues and the provision of his people. He had been given the Red Sea to cross and bread from heaven. But then he goes up to a little mountain to pitch a tent to have a chat with God. And his fears come out. I cannot lead these people. I will not lead these people. Look at them. They're making idols. This is embarrassing. And he says to God, you have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your way so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. As in, these are your people, so they're your problems. And the Lord replied, My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. There is nothing that Moses can do but receive the presence of God. There's no manipulation. There's no tactics. There's just a simple, raw request. We're not moving unless you're going with us. Then... The question is, how will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me from and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? This is the question. It's the question of Moses. And it's the question for us. What distinguishes us? What marks us? What marked the people of God fundamentally was not first what they did. It was who was with them. Stanley Hauerwas says the first task of the church 
is not to make the world more just, but to make the world more the world. The distinguishing factor between the people of God and the system we know as the world is the presence of God. What marks us as a church is not that we are kinder than the world or more gentle or even have more self-control. Those things may or may not be true, and it's good to be known for such qualities. But the fundamental distinction is that we believe that God has shown up and completely changed the architecture and trajectory of our life. And out of that presence flows a lifestyle. But the receiving of the very presence of the Spirit of Jesus is what is our primary marker. And it's the marker, by the way, that is shared across intercultural churches all over the world. The things that we share with the Latino church and the Chinese church and the church in Bangladesh is not much culturally. Style is different. Values are even different. But what is not different is that we have met with God. Our goal is not to first make the world a better place. It is not first to go and do, even. It is to receive. Before the Great Commission is even given, Jesus sees his disciples upon resurrection as they are locked in a room for fear of the Jews. And Jesus shows up and says, peace be with you. As the Father is sending me, so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. There is no going before there is being. Receiving always precedes giving. Purpose without power is pointless. If the world notices us for anything good, it will be because Jesus has breathed his life into us, infused us with the energy and the power of the Holy Spirit, and indwelt by his presence, then we go. So back to Moses, the Lord responds this way to him. I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. And then Moses said, now show me your glory. And God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will declare my name before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will be merciful to whom I will be merciful. And then Yahweh says, but you cannot see my face for a human being cannot see my face and live. Behold, there is a place near me where you shall stand on the rock And as my glory passes by, I will set you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So when God dispenses his mercy, it's less an act of withholding something and more an act of protecting something. God's holiness is cannot be touched by sin, lest someone die. But God's holiness does not negate God's intimacy. So when Peter says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people, once you had not received mercy, but now you had received mercy, he is pulling from the Exodus story. And the people of Israel's story in the Old Testament gets drugged into the New Testament, and now the mercy extended to the Israelites is the mercy extended to me, to us. 
You see, God does not love Israel because Israel has done something. God does not love Moses because Moses has done something. God loves Israel because God loves Israel. And it's out of that mercy that Israel is to become a blessing to the nations. But Israel's first and primary job is to receive the mercy of God. The protection of God. The blood painted over the doorpost meant the primary job of the people of God was to trust. The parting of the Red Sea meant that the primary job of the people of God was to stand. The bread flakes falling from the sky meant that the primary job of the people of God was to have their hands open and their stomachs hungry. And it is in each of these moments where there is an encounter of mercy. It wasn't that they thought with their head that God was merciful. It's that they received mercy. So I have mentioned to you all before about the year I spent in Cincinnati. It was the most transformative year of my life for so many reasons, but there is one reason that stands above them all. See, for nine months, I lived with this family, this host family called the Guth family. They were incredible. They are the most hospitable family. They're so welcoming. They're The minute I walked in the door, I was served sweet tea, which they they don't believe in Cincinnati. So I knew that I was welcomed. And we would sit together on Friday evenings and sip a glass of wine and play board games until midnight. I would ask them questions about their marriage. They would ask me questions about my childhood. I got to see them parent with graceful ease amidst very challenging relational dynamics. I was hanging on every word they spoke as if it was going to change my entire life. And that was the rhythm for nine months. It was everything you could ask for in an immersive discipleship environment. But I stayed with them for 12 months. And the last three months were very unlike the previous nine. See, I had started building relationships with a group of young adults in the city. I had started hanging out with them after work. And the more I began to do that, the more I began to feel myself drifting from my relationship with the Guth family. I would arrive late at night, later than I ever had previously, and I didn't really communicate with who I was with uh, or what I was doing or why I was pulling in at 2 a.m. I had a nagging sense of loneliness and isolation that had started to rise to the surface. For various reasons, I was longing for a sense of security and belonging among my peers. And it seemed like maybe I had found it or at least some semblance of it. But it was coming at a cost. And that cost was nine months of relational equity getting spent in the course of like two weeks. And my insecurities continued to come out and they went fairly unaddressed. And then one night, after hanging out with a bunch of my newfound friends... I arrived back at their house around 1.30 a.m. And as I was driving back, I just had this paralyzing fear. I feel like Dave and Jill, who were the parents of the home, are up right now. And not kidding, I pulled in the driveway, I punched in the garage code, and as the door is coming up, Dave is sitting on the steps. And every fear, every insecurity, 
every psychological emotion of shame and grief just came upon me. And I waited on him to light me up like I figured he would light up his own son because that's how he had treated me up to this point, like his own son. And he did treat me like his own son. He just didn't light me up. Instead, he asked me one question and made one statement. The question was, are you okay? And the way he said it implied, well, I know you're not okay. I just want you to be honest with me. And the statement was, you know, we are just worried about you. And the next day was a Saturday, so Dave and Jill and two of their four kids, Hannah and Tim, were at home. And we sat down in the living room, and I assumed the position where I felt the most comfortable. I sat on the floor of the living room, and I had all of them sit on the couch. Because I felt like absolute junk and I wanted them to know that at least in that moment, I wanted them to look down on me. I wanted them to reinforce what I felt like was the narrative. They are untouchable people and I am worthless. And I wanted what I thought to be true of them to be realized. They are wonderful people and... They are just people, and they have had enough of me. And as I was just about to dump all that I had been processing onto their lap, Dave makes this subtle move. He moves from the couch to the floor. And he says, Wesley, before you start, just know two things. Nothing is going to shock us, and we live for moments of clarity and honesty. So, of course, I lose it, (laughs) start bawling. My whole last month gets word vomited out, which then proceeds to the last six and a half, seven years of my life getting dumped on them. And I profusely apologize to them. But the apology at that point was actually pretty simple because I had been keeping up appearances for so long and felt trapped in the prison of my own pretending that speaking up honestly actually granted me freedom. And to be frank, I expected Jill and Dave to accept my apology because that is the kind of people that they are. Though I am not sure in that moment I wanted their acceptance as much as I wanted their scolding. I wanted to be told how disappointed and how let down and how angry they were at me. And all they did was offer undeserved Forgiveness, But that was not the shocking part, nor was it the most humiliating part. It was the fact that as we moved down the couch from Dave to Jill to Hannah, who's 15, to Tim, who was 12, who had admitted to me on more than one occasion how much he had looked up to me, voiced these words. Wesley... I'm a little lost in this conversation. And I'm also a little hurt. But I do forgive you. Being forgiven by wise, seasoned, 60-year-old people who have lived a ton of life was kind of expected. 
getting forgiveness from a 12-year-old boy who thought you hung the moon, humiliating. And then Dave prayed a very short, simple, and profound prayer that's been prayed for the last 2,000 years. Lord Jesus, have mercy on us all. And weirdly enough, in that moment, I have never felt more protected. See, I knew that they were a family who believed in the theological idea of mercy. And I knew I was a person who believed in the theological idea of mercy. We had chopped it up for a year on theology and philosophy, and it had impacted me shortly. But I had not encountered mercy. But when a 12-year-old boy looks you in the eyes with some semblance of confusion, fear, and grief, and says, I forgive you, that was the moment where I realized what it means to be a disciple is to learn the art of receiving mercy. And that was over a decade ago, and I can still put myself in their dining room because encounters with divine mercy are not easily forgotten. See, the church is just a place that has been marked and undone by loud mercy, the protection of God. So what is it for you? When has the protection of God been so unbelievably evident in your life that all you can say is mercy? When has something that you wanted been withheld from you and you later realize it's God's protection over you? These are the stories of mercy. I want this house to be a place that it's constantly telling stories of mercy. To long for the pure spiritual milk is to have tasted the tender mercy of God and said, I want more of that. It's not a movement beyond mercy. It is just a deeper movement into it. And then the last thing is building. So as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. To know the story of the world as told in the Bible is to know the beginning the middle and the end are a story about God delighting in the world. God loves, God creates, God delights. We receive and in turn we delight. And we see this most explicitly in the Garden of Eden, which the Hebrew word for Eden is delight. So God creates the land in six days, takes up rest on the seventh and walks in the Garden of Delight. In the evening with his creation. And he tells humanity something in Genesis 2. To work the land and to keep it. This is known as the cultural mandate. So Adam and Eve eventually turn against their creator and seek after something else. And the result of that seeking is separation. And the remedy to separation is sacrifice. And the goal of sacrifice is restoration and delight. So fast forward to the building of the temple. A symbol of Eden, a symbolic place where the God of heaven would dwell on earth. It was like this great overlap where the the place of the presence of God in heaven and the place of the presence of God on earth would meet. 
And the temple was modeled after the garden, by the way. The menorah symbolizing the tree of life. Gold and flowers draped everywhere. The entrance to the temple was to the east on a mountain facing Zion. And the entrance to Eden was from the east. In various places in the scripture, pictured being on a mountain. And the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the Ark of the Covenant both were accessed or touched on pain of death. And both were sources of wisdom. And so I said, to work and to keep was used to describe the cultural mandate. The only other time to work and to keep is used in the scriptures is in Numbers 3, 5-7. through The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near. They shall keep guard over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they work at the tabernacle. So Adam and Eve were the earth's first priests. And the priests oversaw the temple were just pointing back to the original mandate and they were pointing forward to the collective mandate. And when the temple is torn down, we read the Ezekiel prophecy that says, Although I have scattered you in the countries of the world, I will be a sanctuary to you. This is the promise of God that he will come to be the temple. And the Gospel of John opens up this way. And the word became flesh and we redwelt. The actual word is tabernacled. He tabernacled among us. And then one chapter over we read, Jesus enters the rebuilt temple and he asks for a sign. And they say, really, you are the son of God. Show us. And he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Who, by the way, is the temple of the body of Jesus? It is us. The crucifixion is the ultimate demolition project of the temple of God. And the resurrection is the ultimate rebuilding project of the temple of God. And here is the biggest hurdle for us. We hear that recounting and we amen the biblical theology of it all, not realizing it just doesn't stop there. Because while God the Father initiates the building of the temple and God the Son embodies it, It's God the Spirit who applies the biblical theology to us. We get in on the story. It is upon Jesus' ascension that He literally breathes on them the Holy Spirit. And because Jesus was both the true temple and the once and for all sacrifice and the great high priest, He establishes us as His home. The place where God lives is right here among us. And it is individually. There is truth to that. But we, as a Western society, take it a step too far because there has never been a more individualistic culture in the histories of the world and the West. Collectively, as a people, we are the living temple of God. The living stones being built up. Strangers? Yep. Life is difficult at times. Sojourners, yes. This land as we know it is not what we are ultimately living for, but we are also ambassadors from another kingdom, sent by another king, from the future coming into the present. And our lives together are marked by the breath of the Spirit.
And we are pointing forward to a new temple where the whole earth is restored by the power of God. And we are the compelling alternative to the world, pointing to that day, to that temple. And we know through the truth and lens of Scripture, we know through the person and work of Jesus, and we know through personal and corporate experience that God is supremely invested and bring more and more people into his house. He is constantly breathing on stones, causing them to live, laying them on one at a time. And this cut undercuts so much of our individualistic culture, especially, especially in the um, American evangelicalism experience. We are the preview of the coming kingdom. In the new earth, there are no inequalities. There are no injustices. So as the people of God, we work for this house to be a place of equity across various lines, gender, race, and socioeconomically. In the new earth, there are no needs at all. And so as the people of God, we work to be a house that notices and seeks to meet needs, seeks to carry needs, and feel them and shoulder them among each other. In the new earth, there will only be people who are captivated by the worship of Jesus. And so the invitation for us right now is to practice adoration. What separates us from most of the world is not that we live more moral lives. Though compelled by Jesus, we seek after his life to the fullest, which includes a life marked by holiness. And what separates us from the world is not that we can have a deep affection for each other, though a key indicator of our love for Jesus is our love for one another, especially, especially those we would not naturally gravitate toward. But what separates us from the world is that we have recognized that God is after the world. And our only response is awe. I believe, if I could speak candidly for a moment, I could be wrong, I could be very wrong on this, but I, I don't think I am and I don't say this lightly at all. I believe there are people in this neighborhood who would be interested in a church that sought to care for those on the margins of our city, but I think that's where they would stop. They would be interested. I say this because I feel like I speak to them pretty weak on a weekly basis. When talking about those on the outside of our city and those on the outside of most of our churches, they say, man, the inclusivity of which you want people who don't feel safe in a church to feel safe is really interesting to me. But it's interest. I know for a fact there are people in this neighborhood who would be interested in a church that was a really welcoming place for a newcomer. Who does not want to feel the embrace of people when they walk into a new space? And who doesn't want a place that can foster meaningful friendships for potentially decades? Again, sincere interest. But I am convinced that people are drawn to a flame when they see there's no logical explanation for it outside the love of God. See, that is why this graphic is so captivating to me. Good community. Everyone loves and needs friends. Good mission. Anyone loves to join a meaningful cause. But to be the match 
that the Holy Spirit lights up so that the people of God might burn with holy zeal for decades, that they have received mercy and are becoming the place where God dwells through the midst of serious pain, quiet devotion, honest confession, and supernatural power. That is not a perfect church, by the way. That is not a perfect church. That is just a church that honors God. And it is a church that loves the area it inhabits with a holy zeal. In the Old Testament, it's called the temple. In the New Testament, it's called the church. It is to have communion, community, and commission so intertwined that you cannot get one without the other. You cannot want the kingdom and disregard the king. That is, by the way, the cultural narrative in the world. One care a lot about things of the world, care less about the king. There's also the other end of the spectrum, which is the ones that we're most familiar with. We have a private relationship with the king. We don't care anything about the kingdom. They're two sides of the same coin, and the coin doesn't work in the currency of the actual kingdom. There is a really long road to get there, but this is a package deal. To love God that propels us to love one another, that propels us to love our neighbor sacrificially and supernaturally. That is going to make us into a people of love. And that, by the way, is a lifetime journey. In the celebration of discipline, Richard Foster diagnoses a really helpful cultural issue. He says this, superficiality is the curse of our age. The doctrine of instant satisfaction is primarily a spiritual problem. The desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent people or gifted people, but deep people. This, is, by the way, is the invitation of covenant partnership that we've been talking about. A lot of you, actually, pretty much all of you that I know, are crazy intelligent. I love that. The world does not need smarter Christians. It just doesn't need that. A lot of you have a plethora of gifts, and we want to celebrate those, by the way. But, if I can say it so strongly... The world does not need more gifted Christians. Hey, some of the most gifted leaders and musicians that have dominated the landscape of American Christianity for the last 50 years. And look where it's got us. But you know this because you are around people every single day. At work, family of origin, neighbors, friends, you name it. We live in a superficial age. What our city needs is people marked by mercy, compelled by love, who give off the scent of the Spirit of Jesus wherever they go. That is who we want to be. The first task of the church is to make the world more like the world. It is not to draw battle lines, by the way. Okay, It's just to invite those in the world into the relationship of the extravagant, mercy-giving God. The temple was the place marked by the presence of God, and now the presence of God fills us. And the Spirit of Jesus, by the way, is in no way confined to these four walls. That was the beautiful irony of the veil being torn in two. Access to God happens outside the temple now. 
in little temples everywhere, on the streets where two or three are gathered, so there is the Spirit of the living Jesus. Walk the streets. Walk these streets. These streets and the, and the dirt roads of a Middle Eastern town like Jerusalem, that is where the Spirit of Jesus meets us. He is there when encouraging words are spoken, when generous sacrifices are made, when needs are met, when people are welcomed, when homes are open, when prayers are prayed, when tables are shared, and when worship of Him is the central operating system of our life. And then we begin to smell like Jesus in our business interactions, in our marriages, in the way we parent, in our friendships. This is the end game, a life of deep devotion that makes us people of love. And the journey into deeper partnership is us staking our flag in the ground and saying, this is who we are. Let's pray. Father, you lavish mercy on us. So much mercy. And we are really good at refusing it. Ignoring it. Turning away from it. Help us be a people who receive the loving kindness of God. Thank you for warming our hearts to what it means to love you And to love the world. Give us the courage. And the compassion. And the conviction. To live a deeper life in you. And it is in the name of the one. The only one. Who is going to make that possible. In the spirit of Jesus name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.